if you uh, don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers will bring one to you. Uh, if you do, you can open it up to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 8. Every, every time we cross, cross the threshold into another chapter, I feel like it is a moment of celebration. <laughs> but we are in Luke chapter 8. Uh, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. All right, let me read, and then we'll pray and dive in. Soon afterward, he, being Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, Help us just to check our hearts for a moment as we approach your word. The danger of spending so much time in your word is it becomes commonplace. And when it becomes commonplace, we, for some reason, drift towards apathy or indifference. God, your words are the very words. Your voice is the voice that created the heavens we see. Everyone's flocking and traveling for miles and miles to see an eclipse. The sun is just one star. One little, tiny little star in an infinite universe that you created with a word. And we come now to hear your words to us. Spoken, sure, through human vessels, but your words nonetheless. God, we ask, as we open the scriptures, would you create in us? Would you renew? Would you recreate? Would you redeem? Would you refresh? Would you challenge, convict, encourage? And for any who don't know Christ in this room, would you cause them to be born again by your power? We invite you to do that here this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Guys, so uh, if you read those three verses with me, um, you probably were like, really? A sermon on that? And uh, that's what I thought, too. Um I thought I would just be reading these three verses kind of as context real quick, maybe make a brief note and then get straight into the good stuff, right? The parable of the sower and the seed, something significant and meaty. Um, But the more I looked into these verses, the more they became almost like a diamond in my hand. Um, And 
what I started to notice is that these verses are displaying to us many different facets of Jesus's ministry. Not all by any means. Uh, it's a diamond with infinite facets, and we could look at his ministry from a thousand different angles, but a few significant ones nonetheless. Um, so I wanted to bring out this morning, actually, four of these facets in particular, though, as always, there were more that I could have, and to serve you well, I cut them out. Uh, I will bring you four. Um, I'm going to sum these facets up with just one word here, but we will uh, expound on these for the remainder of our time. Facet number one, news. Facet number two, service. Facet number three, acceptance. And then facet number four, need. So let's go. Facet number one, news. Um, Jesus's ministry had one central focus, one driving aim, goal, one uh, overwhelming activity. He was devoting himself primarily to heralding, announcing, preaching, proclaiming, bringing. You say that's five things. No, just five synonyms. Bringing the, what we see there, good news of the kingdom of God. Heralding, proclaiming, preaching, bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. He came to preach, to speak, to announce the kingdom and its king are here. And this is so clear as to be indisputable, actually, because Jesus himself actually says this about his own ministry and why the father sent him in the first place. We remember back perhaps in Luke 4 and uh, verses 42 to 43, Jesus had been in Capernaum. And uh, unlike the, the synagogue stuff at, at Nazareth, uh, this was actually going pretty well in Capernaum. And people were flocking to him and he was casting out demons and healing the sick. And uh, in fact, it was so successful there for him that he could not even get a loan, right? And so he would get up, you know, before the sun was up and try to get off into desolate places, we're told. But even there, they come and they find him. Now, listen to this. Verses 42 and 43 of Luke 4. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Why did Jesus come? What's his central purpose and mission? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So in our text this morning, really what we see is just kind of the ongoing march of this single-hearted mission. You see it there in verse 1. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. He's still doing here what he was doing back in Luke 4. And interestingly enough, he'll continue doing it even on the other side of his death and resurrection. Let me read you Acts 1 3. 
He presented himself alive to his apostles after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and doing what? Speaking about the kingdom of God. I got to get this good news out there. I want to help you understand what this good news of the kingdom is. I'm here to preach. I'm here to proclaim. I'm here to herald. I'm here to announce. I'm here to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. This is the central focus, the master theme in our Savior's ministry. Now, I want to make um, something of this idea of news here for a moment. Um, Euangelion, the Greek word for uh, gospel, usually translated gospel. It's where we get the word evangelism and things. means literally good news. Now, that is radically significant for your life. You might not realize it. I'm going to help you realize it right now. The gospel, before it is anything else, is first news. Okay. It is the announcement, the proclamation, the joyful report that something has happened in Jesus. That the kingdom lost in Adam is now being regained in him. That the saving reign of God is now available. It's now here. And sinful rebels, though we be, we can enter back into that kingdom through Christ. The gospel, before it is anything else, is first news. And this is you're still confused, I'll help you here, but this is probably the single most important thing we can actually say about Christianity. Because Christianity as news is what sets it apart from all other religions. Think with me here for a moment. All other religions are fundamentally not news, but a set of instructions telling you what you can do to be saved, whether that salvation is uh, something like heaven or the afterlife, whether that salvation is like an escape from the cycles of reincarnation and being absorbed into the Brahmin or whatever you want to say. Salvation is all other religions present, as it were, an instruction manual. Something that you need to do if you're going to get there. They might provide stories or news about people who have gone ahead of you and done certain things, but it's still up to you to get it done and follow them or whatever it was. So all other religions are fundamentally a set of instructions, but Christianity holds out first at the most fundamental level, not a set of instructions, but news. Not what you can do, what you need to do to be saved. But what God, what Jesus has done to save you. Not what you need to do to climb your way back up to God. But what God has done in coming down to get 
you. Do you hear the, the, the difference? This is huge. I had an illustration I'll pass by. Muhammad, Buddha, whatever religious teacher, they can instruct you, but they cannot save you. They can guide you along the way. But it's up to you and your strength to follow. But Jesus, on the other hand, first saves you. It's news. It's something out there, something that he did. It's in the headlines. He first saves you and then he instructs you. Then he can lead you and guide you. Any instruction that the scriptures give us is set within the context of this good news. So in Christianity, before we talk about what you must do, we talk about what he's already done. And what that means is, is that we remove the burden. We remove the burden from you before you even start. All other religions, it's like trying to do something with a boulder on your back. Run the race with a boulder on your back. Christianity says, no, no, no. The boulder has been removed in Christ. Now run like the wind. Because you're free. And you don't need to try to climb up. You don't have to worry, is God frowning or smiling today? He is smiling and he will be smiling forever because of what Jesus did in the headlines. Have you read it? It is finished. It's news before it's ever instruction. He's lived the life you should have lived. He's died the death you should have died. And he's now risen from the dead. And you can be united to him by faith, which means his perfect record counted as yours. His, his, his death for sin counted as yours and his resurrection power now accessible to you. So that's where we start with the news. And then we get to instruction. But it's so different. It's so different. Because now when we bring instruction to you, it's no longer you. But Christ living in you. It's not your own resources. But his spirit. And his grace. And his power. Let me give you an example to help you see the significance of this. Anybody struggle with the fear of man? Struggle with the fear of man. I wonder if they like me. I wonder what they're going to think about me. I wonder if I'll please them. What did that frown mean? What did that email mean? People like me or not? Fear man. It's common. You're not alone. It's a struggle. It's real. Now, let's take the two different approaches here. Instruction first comes to you and says, well, get over it. If you're struggling with the fear of man, stop. 
There's nothing to fear. You say, thanks, I know that, um, but I don't have the power. I don't have the resources. I'm still up every night. You can tell me, stop all you want. You can come in and instruct me. But I don't have the resources to, to fight this. Now, Christianity comes in and says, let me give you the news. Let me give you the news. Put these people aside for a moment. And let's talk about the, the one whose opinion matters most in all the, in all the universe, God. Do you realize that he is for you? Do you realize that he is pleased with you? Do you realize that in Jesus, you are the apple of his eye? And there's no turning back from that. There is assurance. There is, there is kindness from the Father forever. There are open arms for you in heaven. You stay there a little while in the news. And you start thinking about the acceptance that God has shown you in Jesus and the love that he has for you. Well, slowly, as that takes root, you'll start to grow in letting go of fear of man. But you have to start with the news before you get to the instruction, so to speak. You start with the gospel. And as we'll see next week, the parable that's on the seed, the fruit comes forth from that seed. But to try to expect fruit without the seed of the word of God and the gospel, the news is to come expecting fruit from a, 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 seed, a, a, a garden that you didn't put any seed in. It's foolish. So Christianity is news before it is ever instruction. Jesus is savior before he is ever teacher. And you are loved and accepted in him before you ever lift a finger. And that makes all the difference in the world. Now, proclaiming the gospel as news was Jesus's mission from the beginning to the end of his earthly ministry. But he's now given that same mission to us. And we see this here in Matthew 24, 14, where he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So this good news of the kingdom is going to be proclaimed to all the nations to the end of the earth. Who's going to do that? Well, you follow Matthew out and you know it's us. It's us. It's the church. It's his disciples. He's going with us. You better believe it. But it's us centering in on that same message, holding firm to that no matter what the currents or the undertoes of culture are pulling. Believe me, I feel that. It's current and it's undertow pulling out of the pulpits in our land, away from the news. Uh, it's outdated. It's irrelevant. It's not entertaining enough. But it's everything. The gospel is everything. And it's our calling to hold on to it as well. Now, <clears throat> facet number two. So first, Jesus, is, Jesus gave himself to a ministry of news, proclaiming, heralding 
news. Now what we see is he gives himself to a ministry of service. And I'll go quickly through this one because I've said things like this before. But it's important, so important to me uh, that I always try to bring it out when I see it. Jesus does not just merely talk about the kingdom. He doesn't just merely announce that the kingdom is here. Hey, there's good news. The kingdom and the king is here. No, he doesn't just talk about it. He manifests the kingdom, right? He displays it. He walks it out in front of them. He shows them what it looks like, what this kingdom is all about. It's not just word. He always walks it out and backs it up with deed. Matthew speaks of this in general terms in Matthew 4.23 when he says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Not just talk, not just teaching, but kingdom power. Not just the news, but the manifestation of the kingdom. And it's goodness as he puts broken people back together. Matthew speaks in general terms, but our text puts some particulars on it. Luke gives us the names of specific women, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, who had been healed, we read there in verse 2, of evil spirits and infirmities. So again, not just telling these women about the kingdom, but letting the kingdom come upon them in power. And saving power and healing power. Not just uh, kingdom news, or good news, but loving service. And this is important to note because really this is God's master plan for growing the church. What we see in Jesus' life is what we hope to be as a church. We are his body, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We all play a little part of what Jesus does in full. Let me be just a little bit. But what is he doing in his ministry when he's on the earth? Well, there's, there's word and there's deed going forth. There's news and there's service. And this is God's means of growing the church, of advancing his kingdom. So when Jesus comes in our text and he preaches the kingdom and then he manifests the kingdom to these ladies, well, what do they do? We're going to follow. We're going to follow this king. We want in to this kingdom. If that's what the king is like, if that's what the king does. And so we ought to do the same. We ought not to just be uh, a church filled with a lot of talk, but a church that backs it up with deed, that walks it out, the gospel for all to see. So that when we see someone, uh, you know, that is uh, cold and hungry on the side of the road, like John would tell us in his epistle, we don't just say, be warm and filled. Jesus loves you as we pass on by. The kingdom's great. We'll see you later. No. Instead, we manifest the kingdom. We invite this brother or sister into our house. 
we put that blanket that we usually use on our bed on cold nights around this guy's unbathed shoulders. Or we give the leftover soup that we were hoping to have for our dinner this night to his growling and neglected belly. Be warm and be filled takes on physical expression. The good news of the kingdom is walked out in our lives. That is the God-ordained means of growing, and we as a church should not grow if we're not doing it. That is the God-ordained means of advancing the kingdom. So if we care about advancing it, and I know that we do, we will not only give ourselves to in-depth understanding, holding to God's word and his gospel, we will also give ourselves to relentless, loving, humble service in the neighborhoods and in our city and in the world. And I, just for the record, I see you doing that. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Your ministries resemble the Lord's. Ministry of news, ministry of service. Now, third facet, a ministry of acceptance. Reading our text through a modern lens, we might not make much of the details that Luke gives us here. Uh, But in the ancient world, the world in which Jesus and his disciples walked, the little bit we are shown here (laughs) would have been stunning to them. Uh, almost probably disturbing. I'm referring in particular to Jesus' acceptance of these women into the circle of his disciples. Let me show you this. We read at the end of verse 1 that the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. Stop there. Now, such acceptance and inclusion of women into kind of this inner circle of Jesus' disciples, this band of people following closely, having access to Christ as rabbi. This would have been like running running Jesus' fingernails down the rabbinic opinion and tradition of the day. Just, what is he doing? Are you kidding me? Luke knows this. That's why he tells us this is happening. Luke, I could have done this for you, but I, again, spared you. Luke constantly is bringing our attention to women. And Jesus' interaction with, men, with women. And oftentimes when he shows Jesus' interaction with a man, he will quickly follow it up with Jesus' interaction and, and a story regarding a woman. Because he's trying to get at something here that was not common in that day. And I'm sorry to say it. Let me just read you a string of commentary on this that will help you kind of get a sense of uh, what it would have been like in that day what the opinions were swirling around in the time when Jesus walked and was doing these things. This actually, I think, comes from your brother, (laughs) Uh, Chris, which is kind of funny. So one scholar, Chris's brother, (laughs) writes this. 
For these women to travel with the group would have been viewed as scandalous. Adult co-education was unheard of. And that these women were learning Jesus' teachings as closely as his male disciples would surely bother some of those outside. Another scholar writes this, the rabbis refused to teach women and generally assigned them a very inferior place. Third scholar writes this, and now he starts to quote the rabbinic literature for us. Rabbinic sayings are not complementary with respect to rabbis speaking to women. Thus, now he quotes, talk not much with womankind. Do you hear that? Dude, my wife would slap me, and rightfully so, if I said this. <laughs> talk not much with womankind. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law, and at last will inherit Gehenna. As far as I know, that's in the Mishnah, the body of oral tradition that's coming you know, from the rabbis around the time of Jesus. He quotes another source there. A man should not discourse with a woman on the street, even with his own wife, and certainly not with another woman because of human gossip. And then finally, one final commentator comes down, and uh, we find out that according to the rabbinic literature, a Jewish man, I think some even still do this today, prayed three benedictions each day. One of those benedictions included this thanksgiving to God that I've not been created a woman. You hear that? It's horrible, right? These guys claiming to be kind of following God's truth or keeping God's truth have, have gone so far from it. That's what Jesus is coming to get back on track. But all of this perhaps serves as background to that little scene that we actually do see in um, John's gospel, in the Bible, where, you know, um, Jesus is talking to that Samaritan woman in the heat of the day. And you kind of get a sense that this is where the disciples are coming from, too, when they come to him in John 4, 27. And, and um, we, read, we read this. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Like... Jesus, how could you, what are you, everybody knows you, you don't do that. You don't do that. Everybody knows that. You of all people should know that. But Jesus isn't concerned with what everybody knows. He's not concerned with public opinion on the matter he's concerned with his father's opinion on the matter and as far as his father is concerned <laughs> this woman these women they've been created in the image of God just as much as any man Genesis 1 27 God created man in his own image Male and female, he created them. So Jesus is not interested in reinforcing the stereotypes, the superficialities and corruptions that often fester within patriarchal societies. They don't have to fester there, but they often do. And Jesus is not interested in reinforcing those. He has come instead to redeem and renew a people. 
to restore things to God's original design, to renew us after the image of the God who created them. And what that means is his target audience, the target of his mission is any who have been created in his image. Which means everyone under the sun, all people, male, female, it's the basic division. But we could keep going. Rich and poor, young and old, educated, uneducated, healthy, sick, model citizens, criminals, prudes and prostitutes, religious and secular, social savvy people, socially awkward people, Republicans, Democrats. And then you do just need to say it because of what we've been seeing in the news, right? Whites and blacks. All in God's image. Therefore, all on God's heart. So Jesus is redeeming and renewing a people. He's reconciling them both to God and to one another. I mean, you've got to sit in the place of the disciples for a moment. We get a little hint of that there in John 4 and some of the rabbinic teachings and traditions of the day. But you've got to sit with those disciples for a moment and recognize that they were going to be a bit troubled by Luke 8, 1 through 3. <clears throat> what are these women doing here? Following along and Doing the same things that we're doing. You're teaching to them. You're talking to them. You're treating them almost like equals or something. But the problems that these men have will just continue as Jesus' mission continues. Because in Acts, we start to see, well, well, what are these Gentiles doing here? Wait a minute, the promises were made to Israel. The Messiah was, he himself was a Jew. Man, we are the chosen people. What are these Gentiles doing here eating their pig and stuff like that? They got bacon, that kind of smells good. <laughs> and then by the time Jesus is done, there will be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the cross. All in God's image, therefore all on God's heart. So when we turn on the news or we scroll our Facebook feeds and we see a nation all but ripping at the seams over matters of race, of skin color, we the followers of Christ, of this Jesus, with this ministry of acceptance, we dare not add to the rip and tear. But instead, right, we walk with our Lord. We walk with our Lord into the fray, not pulled by cultural opinion one way or the other, but standing firm on God's word, grounding our anthropology, our doctrine of man in our doctrine of creation, which says that all have been created in God's image in the womb or out of it, black or white, male or female. And so we move 
not to rip and tear, but to mend and to heal. Jesus accepts them into his company. So do we. Speaking into the present moment, um, Tim Keller writes this. I thought it was valuable and wanted to read it to you. This is a time to present the Bible's strong and clear teachings about the sin of racism and of idolatry of blood and country. In Acts 17 to 26, uh, or 17:26, in the midst of an evangelistic lecture to secular pagan philosophers, Paul makes the case that God created all the races from one man. All races from one man. Paul's Greek listeners saw other races as barbarian, but against such views of racial superiority, Paul makes the case that all races have the same creator and are of one stock. Since all are made in God's image, every human life is of infinite and equal value. When Jonah puts the national interests of Israel ahead of the spiritual good of the racially other pagan city of Nineveh, he is roundly condemned by God, Jonah 4, 1 through 11. One main effect of the gospel is to shatter the racial barriers that separate people. Galatians 3.28, Ephesians 2.14-18. So it is an egregious sin to do anything to support those barriers. When Peter sought to do so, Paul reprimanded him for losing his grasp on the gospel. You remember Galatians 2.14? He pulled away and wasn't eating with the Gentiles. And Paul approaches him and says, bro, you stand condemned. Because you are attacking the very heart of the gospel that says, Jew and Gentile, come together in Jesus. Let me read you one other pastor who puts it a bit stronger. This is Matt Chandler. White supremacy and the alt-right is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is evil. And from the pit of hell. You simply cannot call Jesus king and believe that nonsense. In fact, a friend of mine said, and I love this, heaven will be a white supremacist's hell. (laughs) Because the nations will be there. So if we care about the gospel, if we care about the ministry of Christ, if we want to follow him in that, we will not add to what Matt Chandler calls this nonsense. But we will bring a different kind of ministry, a ministry of acceptance. Now, let me conclude this facet this way. All the accusations that we hurl at one another, All the enmity, all the strife, all the bullets that kind of whiz between us or perhaps the cars that accelerate upon us. I just want you to see that our our Christ, our Jesus has done. It's as if he kind of steps into that and throws himself into the crossfire. And he lets us rage on him for a little while. Take out our ferocity. Our anger, our bitterness upon him on that cross so that when the dust settles three days later and he's risen from the dead, 
we realize that our true enemies, not the guy standing across the line, but our true enemies have been taken care of. They've been handled. Satan, sin, and death, and the dividing wall of hostility that stood not only between us and God, but between us and one another, has been torn down. That's why he throws his life into the crossfire. To make a new people. To redeem, to renew, to reconcile. So that whether you are a man or a woman, a Jew or a Gentile, white, black, brown, red, yellow, what I love about this church is almost all of those are represented. Any hue in between. There's a place for you around the cross in his kingdom. Understand that? Finally, and here with facet number four, and I'll, I'll maybe take us home a little quicker on this. Need. So we've seen that Jesus has a ministry of news, of service, and of acceptance. And finally, I thought this was really interesting. We see in the last verse, part of the last verse there, that he also has a ministry of need. You got to be careful because I'm not saying needy and things like that, but I don't have time to go into that. But there's an aspect of serving and ministering to others that perhaps ironically actually involves allowing them to serve and minister to you. I would call this a ministry of need where you, though perhaps the leader, actually humble yourself to the point of genuinely needing the other person. Like, I need you to pray for me, or I, I, I need your input on this, or your counsel, or I need your encouragement. Or in the case of Jesus here, he needed, it seems, their provision. He allowed himself to be provided for by these women. You read that there, the last part of verse 3. That these women, some of whom it seems were very well off. Their husbands were even in high places in Herod's court and things. Provided for them, who's them, Jesus and his band of disciples, out of their means. And I saw that, I thought, wow, this is, this is crazy that Jesus, as an act of humility and solidarity with us, would actually humble himself to the point of allowing himself to need us, to be provided for by us, almost like casting himself upon uh, human hospitality. Now, to be clear, in the deepest sense, Jesus doesn't need us, right? He is fully God. I mean, we see evidences of this all over the place, right? Like when Peter has to pay taxes and he's like, dude, just open up that fish. It's not just fish, Peter. There's a coin in there. You give that to him or whatever. Or when he's trying to feed the 5,000, he just breaks, you know, these low, this never-ending, hey, and they all eat. We've got to know he could provide for his own welfare, his own money, his own food, his own shelter. But he doesn't. He allows himself to need us. And I sat there going, why? Why do that? Why not show yourself to be in this separate class and all this other stuff? Why? 
Well, I think and there's probably many answers to this, but one is probably that because he's fully man, not just fully God, but fully man, and as perfect man at that, he's showing us the way towards redeemed, fully functioning human relationships where it's not just this one-way thing where we pretend like, hey, I got all the answers. I'm the minister. I'll lead you. But no, it's like this mutual reciprocity, this need where I open up myself to you. You open up yourself to me. We're co-travelers. We're in this together, you see. So Jesus is allowing humanity to come close, and he is drawing near to them. We're not just showing one another our strengths. Like, oh, I got this. But we're showing one another our weaknesses, like come away with me, he does in Gethsemane. I've got to pray. And he goes and they can hear him crying out to God and they can, you know, sense his anguish. He doesn't hide that from them. He invites them in. He opens himself up to being ministered to by human beings. As a minister, he was not opposed to being ministered to. In fact, he seems to have actually seen it as an important part of his ministry. Allowing others to come and serve and minister to him. Last week, it was the alabaster jar and washing his feet and things like that. This week, it's money. At other points, it'll be, you know, the place where they're going to celebrate the Passover in this guy's home. He opens himself up. And now we see Paul following this model here as well. It's really interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there are countless places in his letters. I'll just read you one uh, where Paul is, is, I would say, uh, engaged in this ministry of need. Here's Romans 15, 30 to 32. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and I may be refreshed in your company. He's opening up his needs to these people. Do you see that? I mean, we might be prone to almost think this sounds selfish. Pray for me. And my ministry to go well. I can't wait to get to you. Because I need to be refreshed by you. Well, Paul. You're an apostle for goodness sake. You're supposed to be praying for them. You're supposed to be refreshing them. This sounds a little selfish. Not when you understand Jesus. And how relationships work. And the ministry of need. That it actually serves others to allow them to serve you. And there's this deeper relationship and bond that forms in the midst of it. That enhances, encourages, increases the ministry you're able to do to them. Does that make sense? So there's something off, I would say, then with the minister who won't let himself be ministered to. We need to ask ourselves, how are we doing with the ministry of need? Are we opening up ourselves to other people, letting them see our weaknesses, letting them see the the, the things that we're struggling with, the ways that we need help? Are we open to that or are we always the givers? 
We're way more comfortable in that zone, like, oh, let me give you advice, and here's the Bible verse, and I'm just great, and here's, oh, sure, you know, let me meet those needs here. But we feel awkward and uncomfortable when it's time for them to meet us. We have to ask ourselves, if that's the case, why? A lot of times, one of two things, pride, I don't need anybody, I got it figured out. I mean, they're just going to tell me what I already know. Give me what I can already get. I got it. Sometimes fear. Fear of rejection, right? Like if they see me, what I really deal with, who I really am, they're going to reject me. They're not going to meet me and, 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 and refresh me. They're going to reject me, which... Interestingly enough, sadly enough, is what happens to Christ. He knows it. He's going to throw himself on human hospitality and they're going to let him down. They're going to kick him out. But he wants that going on anyways. And that's what we want to do, brothers and sisters, with one another. We've got to realize that when we cut others off from actually seeing inside and seeing our needs and ministering to us, what we do is hollow out our relationships and hinder our ministries to them. Because it will, if you, if you open up, if you share like that, what you'll find is that it not only blesses you, but it blesses them as well. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful to be recipients of your ministry to us in Christ. And in Christ, we so hope to be a church that follows you in that ministry to others. But I pray now as we sing, even later as we take communion, that you would meet us, you would minister to us in a powerful way. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.